Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, November 26th. Arden Swelling and Ben Nicholson Smith. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. This is, of course, sportsnet.ca's Blue Jays podcast, talking about all things Toronto Blue Jays as we head through a pretty slow moving. 2020-2021 MLB offseason. Uh, just as a reminder, if it's the first time listening to us and if you enjoy the podcast, you can leave a, a review, you can give a, a rating, you can help us juice those algorithms and that would be a, a great help. So, uh, And then if you've been listening to us for a long time, thank you as always. It's great to have you along. So Ben, since we last spoke, couple things have happened in MLB. We, we've seen a few starting pitchers come off the board. And I'm kind of curious to get your take on how that colors your perception of the Robbie Ray signing, which was like the first signing of the offseason. One year, $8 million for the lefty who walked a whole bunch of dudes last season, had a pretty high ERA, but obviously has the type of stuff that you would bet on. When you then see Drew Smiley come off the board at one year, $11 million, similarly, you know, a left-handed starter, and then Charlie Morton, who has been much better of late than both of those pitchers, um, but obviously is much older, coming off the board at one year, $15 million, how does that sort of, you know, just reframe your opinion, or does it, of the Robbie Ray signing for the Blue Jays? Yeah, it's, it definitely adds context to it. And uh, I think all those deals are pretty good, honestly. I mean, I love the Morton deal at 15 over one to the Braves. That's a great pickup by Anthopolis to add him to that rotation. And even, you know, Smiley, I think, is interesting too. So all three of these deals to me seem pretty reasonable. You know, there's always that saying, there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal. I think that applies in these cases. And as for how it reframes things, I think it's interesting for for Ray in the sense that, I think it underscores that that's a reasonable price to be paying for Robbie Ray. And moving forward, I, I think it informs our view of guys like Jay Happ, who's obviously been linked to the Blue Jays, and James Paxton, who's been linked to the Jays, at least in a speculative sense as well. Yeah, it makes me like the Robbie Ray deal a lot more for the Blue Jays at $8 million. You know, Morton would have been great, obviously. Um, you know, I, I think he's going to be 38 this year. So, like, it's... You know, he certainly is uh, getting up there, but like uh, with the stuff that he's shown over the last couple of seasons, I mean, you'd be willing to bet on him. But look, he cost almost two times as much as Robbie Ray did. Robbie Ray, you get a much younger guy, a guy with much better pure stuff. And then even for less than Smiley went for, for $3 million less there, you get a guy who's been more durable, who's got a, a higher upside. Sure, he's walked a lot of dudes, but you know, you've know you got confidence that Pete Walker and Matt Bushman are going to be able to, to help him out with that. And he looked better in a Blue Jays uniform than he did earlier in the season when he did the you know the bulk of his uh, walking and you know even in like a worst case scenario for you know both Ray and Smiley where say both end up in the bullpen towards the end of the season you'd still want Ray's stuff in that case in my opinion because it's it's just better so if anything like this actually makes me like the Ray deal for the Blue Jays a lot more it makes me think that they made a pretty wise decision in going out and kind of, you know, having the the quick strike of the off season to, to get that business done. Yeah, I think it it continues to look like a, a pretty good deal to me. When you're looking at a guy like Smiley, it's kind of like Drew Pomerantz uh, last off season. You're dealing with a guy who's kind of remaking himself, formerly really well regarded, and then had some struggles. The the thing I like about Smiley is his walk rate is lower than Robbie Ray. And and that certainly applies to Morton too. So, I mean, these guys are much better at getting the ball in the strike zone. You're not 
asking them to show something different than what they've shown in the past. You're just asking them to keep going. And that's the difference with Robbie Ray. The Blue Jays are betting and hoping that he can be someone different than who he was this year. Now, that's not an unreasonable bet to make because he was a great pitcher or at least a a very, very good borderline all-star pitcher for, what, four or five years before uh, this this 2020 season, right? So uh, it's not a crazy bet by any stretch, but I also see the appeal of guys who in their most recent sample were effective. And it does also, as you were alluding to earlier, set the market a little bit for the mid to back end starter. Um, and this might, you, you mentioned Jay Happ as somebody that, you know, I, I think the Blue Jays would have interest in to, to add to the back end of the rotation. James Paxton, another guy who you mentioned who would be, a, a, I think, a good ad for this team and a guy who on a one-year deal would be, you know, looking to improve his health and improve his durability and prove that he can, you know, still be as good as he was earlier in his career. I'll throw with the name Garrett Richards out there, who is a guy who the Blue Jays have, have had interest, to, you know, in, in the past, a guy with big velocity elite spin rates like among the best spin rates in baseball and a guy who you know when you talk about durability look he hasn't been on the field as much as you would have liked but you look at the injuries for him he tears up his knee turning a double play and another was Tommy John so it's like it's no different than you know a Matt Shoemaker or a Taiwan Walker who are guys who have had you know similar sort of injury situations and come back and been effective and and who Blue Jays fans have been absolutely willing to buy into and haven't felt bad about those acquisitions uh, it's not like you know we're talking about a, a recurring shoulder issue here or something or you know constant soft tissue injuries like these are just kind of like large catastrophic injuries that he's overcome and I think you bet on the stuff and the Blue Jays typically bet on stuff that's the Robbie Ray bet is the stuff is so good let's bring him in and see if we can fix him up same thing with Garrett Richards. You look at the velocity and the spin rates. So I think that's someone the, the Blue Jays could bet on. And, I, you know, if that market has been set for the, that mid to back end starter, which we know the Blue Jays are interested in adding and which I think they need to add to this rotation before next season, I don't see why they shouldn't move sooner rather than later if there's somebody out there that they really like and they really want to add to the back end of this rotation. It's something that we know they're going to acquire and it's not going to prevent them from doing anything else this offseason. It's not going to tap too much into their budget. So I I kind of wonder if that's an opportunity that could present itself soon for the Blue Jays. Yeah, it's interesting. And we know that they were linked to Kevin Gosman. You had kind of suggested the possibility, hey, was Gosman the guy that the uh, Blue Jays might have been close on when Ross Atkins was hinting to us that the Jays had been very close on something. Then Ken Rosenthal, a few days ago, reports, well, Jays were offering him 40 over three. Seems like that was the deal that they were close to if they were make, getting to the point of making an offer. That's, that's a pretty serious discussion with Gosman, who ultimately returned to the Giants. So I think that shows a willingness on the part of the Blue Jays to move and to make offers. And if you're talking 40 million for Gosman or you know, argument's sake here, is Jay Happ a one-year $12 million pitcher? Is James Paxton a one-year $16 million pitcher? Just throwing numbers out there. But that's not going to prevent you from doing other things, as you said. So certainly, I don't think there's any reason to hold back. I also don't think there's a particular rush because the Blue Jays are positioned to get one or more of these guys. Garrett Richards, my understanding there is that they do have some interest. They've at least expressed some preliminary interest there. And it makes sense. I mean, he's He's a guy, as you said, with great stuff. You need pitchers like that. You need guys who can slot in and help this team in the course of of the coming season. So all those names make sense. And 
it's only one part of the starting pitching market. I mean, I think you still have guys like Masahiro Tanaka or Jay Kota Rizzi or, of course, Taiwan Walker. I think those guys are better positioned to land multi-year deals just given their age primarily and the fact that they're not linked to draft pick compensation. But a lot of options open for the Jays. I think moving early is one of them and starting pitching. We've said it so many times, but it really is a need for this team. The Gosman thing is interesting. So Ken Rosenthal reports that it, uh, the Blue Jays making a three-year, $40 million offer. And Ross Atkins had indicated to us that the Blue Jays were close on something. Um, so, yeah, those things certainly line up. I like the bet from Gosman of betting on himself and saying, because basically the bet is that he can have a good, healthy season in 2021 and then do better after that season than the two years, $21 million that he would have gotten on the Blue Jays offer i like that bet for him um same one jake odorizzi made a year ago right and it also kind of it tells us some some interesting things i think about the blue jays this offseason you know first of all it tells us that they like a picture of gossman's profile because this is the second year in a row that they've tried to sign him and and he has spurned them it indicates the level of money the blue jays have to spend this winter i think because kevin gossman wouldn't have been like the end of their offseason <laughs> just like you know <laughs> We're done, no. <laughs> uh, right? So, you know, it's that level of financial commitment clearly wouldn't have precluded other moves. So it's like kind of easy to extrapolate out from that, from the $8 million that they've already committed to Robbie Ray, and then it would have been $13 million a year for, for Gosman. I mean, they would still be in the market beyond that for a top-end position player like a George Springer or a DJ LeMahieu, JT Realmuto. And for those guys, you're looking at $20-plus million dollars and I think that in addition to that, they would have been looking at, you know, maybe you pick up a depth outfielder or a depth infielder or something. That's going to be several more million. I mean, we're looking at the Blue Jays having some pretty real coin to throw around this year. And this is just a, we, we knew that, but this is just further affirmation of it, I think. And then finally, Kevin Gosman would have been declining a qualifying offer in the case they signed with the Blue Jays. So that indicates that uh, the Blue Jays are not afraid to sign qualifying offer free agents. And if they sign Gosman, and then also we're still trying to get like a, a Springer, a, a LeMahieu, that would have been further draft pick compensation that the Blue Jays would have been sacrificing because that would be two qualifying offer free agents. So it indicates that that is not something that is stopping them at all from, you know, playing in, in that market. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And you know, in the course of the last couple weeks, as the Blue Chase have been linked to these guys, I don't know whether it's just my experience on on Twitter, because I think we all kind of build our own individual echo chambers on that app. But um, I, at least my impression is that there's almost a sense of kind of surprise when, oh, wow, the Jays are linked to Brad Hand and JT Realmuto and LeMahieu and Springer. And it's like, whoa, they're doing it. But then like, look back to what Ross Atkins said on the record at the beginning of October. He was like, we want to add a super high impact free agent. And there aren't that many of them. Yeah. So of course, the Blue Jays were going to talk to those guys and have a conversation and see where it went. And they've had those conversations now. And at some point, some of those conversations are going to essentially accelerate a little bit and they are going to become almost like a conversation like this Arden where it's like you're the free agent and and I'm trying to recruit you and we're having like a zoom session I'm trying to like pitch you on on the team and and that's how these things happen now in this in this day and age of the pandemic so some of those conversations are going to happen where the, the Blue Jays sit down with these top top guys and try to pitch them on Toronto try to pitch them on the fit 
how it would work, the city, answer any questions the player has. And then in some cases, they'll even make offers. So we don't know exactly where that process sits. The Blue Jays obviously are figuring that out. They don't know how it's going to end any more than anyone else does right now. But, you know, I just don't think that, like, I don't think it's surprising at all when we see the Blue Jays link to these guys because it's like they have a need, they have the money, they said they were going to do it. Like, what did we think was going to happen? Yeah, and, you know, anytime that the Blue Jays are offering somebody $40 million, like, that's not a decision that's made lightly. No. You know, that's something that, like, a lot of thought goes into that. And especially with even the, the qualifying offer scenario, like, that gets factored in as well. Like, the Blue Jays have a very clear-cut process for how they um, factor in the qualifying offer with certain players. So if we're talking about a LeMahieu or a Springer, um, Real Muto, Trevor Bauer is going to have one or has one. Like, if the Blue Jays sign one of those players – they're going to lose their second highest draft selection in the 2021 draft, as well as 500K in international bonus pool money. So what the Blue Jays do is they essentially place a value on the draft pick. So this in 2021, it's going to be in the bottom third of the draft. And they will like dive through sort of the historical data of how players drafted there have performed over the bulk of their careers and what type of return on that um, you know draft pick investment teams have gotten. And then they'll also sort of weigh in the strength of the, the draft class, whether they think it's a strong one or a weak one. And then they'll literally put a dollar figure on that pick and then subtract it from the value of their offer to the free agent plus the 500k international bonus pool money as well so like the the blue jays value on kevin gossman was actually higher than 40 million over three it was you know 40 plus whatever value they put on the draft pick they just subtracted it from the offer because that is their process so like in a sense a a qualifying offer would actually never preclude the Blue Jays from making an offer to a That's free right. agent. It's just this year, their offers will be less impacted financially because they're picking towards the bottom third of the draft, whereas last year they selected fifth overall. So, you know, the value attached to that pick, which ends up as Austin Martin, I mean, that value is going to be far, far higher than their value on the draft pick they would be sacrificing this year. Yeah, exactly. And even like their second round pick, in 2020 it would have been i don't know 35th or 40th overall sometimes there are you know extra picks in there but that's a lot higher than what it will be in 2021 where their second best pick would be something like 50th in the draft so you know if you look back at at the history of drafts most of the damage you're going to see in, is is in the first round most of the damage in the first round is going to be in the first 10 picks so that's going to inform these decisions now it's not to say that there's not immense value in having the 50th overall pick and the blue jays obviously put a lot of value on that but it's certainly less than what it would have been for pick number 35 and so you know as you say that's something that they can factor in every year but that tax if you kind of view it like a tax it's it's almost like the jays are in a, a different tax bracket this year and it's it's a lot less cumbersome yeah Definitely. The other interesting thing about Gosman, well, two in interesting things. One, quickly, you know, second year in a row, he's spurring the Jays. It's just a reminder, free agents have to want to take your money. Yeah. The Blue Jays <laughs> can be linked to everybody and they can offer to everybody. And like we all, like this time last year, we were talking about how they had offered this player and offered that player and talked to this guy and that guy. And like they just got spurned and spurned until Hunch and Ryu finally took their money. The player has to actually want 
to come to your team to play in your market. There are some players who just aren't going to want to play in Toronto. There's some players who are going to be turned off by the uncertainty over where, you know, the club's home games can be played in 2021. There's some players talk about taxes who are going to be scared off by the tax situation in Canada. And the Blue Jays have an entire tax presentation that they make to free agents when they're pitching them on these Zoom meetings. You know, they're talking about the taxes in Canada and how that works. They're talking, they're going to be making a presentation about here are the alternatives for where our home games could be played in 2021 so there's you know the player has to want to sign with you the other thing with Gosman, which i had like completely blanked on he was non-tendered last year and now here he is getting three-year 40 million dollar offers and is just a reminder that the non-tender deadline which is december 2nd when we are expecting this year there to be a flood of sort of veteran role player types veteran bullpen arms some veteran starters hitting the market um, which is really going to be like a pivot point for this market, I think. And I think a lot of the reasons why the market's been held up is because of that impending flood of non-tenders. But there are good players that are going to hit this market. And there are players who are going to become available who at this time in 2021, November 2021, we are going to be looking back on their 2021 seasons and saying, that guy was like a two or three win player. Like that guy was good. Look, Kevin Gosman was non-tendered last year. Taiwan Walker was non-tendered last year. Blake Trinan was non-tendered last year. That guy was closing games in the World Series. Cesar Hernandez was non-tendered last year. He was a two-win player in 60 games this season. So there are going to be good players to be picked up on that non-tendered market. And, you know, the kind of the edge for teams is identifying who those players are and, you know, how good are your projections and how good are your systems and how well do you evaluate players and what they might do for you going forward. But I think that is a market the Blue Jays are going to be interested in, particularly considering they have money to spend. There's going to be a lot of players available and maybe not that many bidders. There should be some value to be found on that non-tender market. Oh yeah, there always there always is. This year will, I mean, it won't be an exception. If anything, this might be the banner year for for the <laughs> non-tender market. Really, to go back to your first point for a second, when it comes to free agents and, and taking their money, you know, sometimes it's actually a good thing when they don't, because you know, you think about Rick Porcello or Kyle Gibson or some of these guys that Jays were pursuing pretty intently last year, and I don't think anyone is pining for you know two more years of Kyle Gibson right now. Not that he can't recover necessarily, but. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's a good thing. And and yeah, absolutely. You think about non-tenders and you think about the amount of players, good players who get non-tendered. Guys like Edwin Encarnacion, Russell Martin, they were non-tendered in their careers and went on obviously to do great things. I mean, in each case, you're probably looking at, you know, guys who won't end up in the Hall of Fame, but will maybe get some votes or, you know, merit at least a little bit of consideration for the highest honor in baseball and and their, you know, the former non-tenders. Yeah, you know, look, if Vince Velasquez is non-tendered or like a Carlos Rodon or Joe Ross, like these are guys who obviously aren't coming off of tremendous seasons, but they're guys who maybe the Blue Jays want to bet on the stuff or maybe they think they could thrive in, in different roles. I mean, I guarantee you there's going to be interesting bullpen arms out there. Adam Simber was, was uh, basically an early non-tendered, non-tendered by Cleveland, DFA. Uh, you know, Michael Feliz might be non-tendered by the Pirates. And look, if the Twins non-tendered Eddie Rosario, maybe that's a depth outfielder that you look at. Maybe you think about a Ben Gamble or a Nomar Mazzara if those guys end up on the market. Like, look, this is nobody that you're breaking the bank for, certainly. And this is nobody that's going to preclude you from doing anything else this offseason. But the, the offseason doesn't always play out where you get your sort of 
big ticket item first and then you you know fill in the margins later sometimes it goes backwards sometimes you get your Robbie Ray first and then you get your Eddie Rosario and your uh, Michael Feliz and then you get your Springer right like sometimes it goes backwards like you're just filling in the puzzle it's like back to your grocery store analogy right like sometimes you you buy the meat last right (laughs) the meat is the most expensive thing you're gonna buy sometimes you go get your seasonings and your spices and your sides first then you put the meat in your in your cart later i'm sure people are happy we've continued this metaphor onto a second podcast (laughs) but so you know like i just think it's something to keep an eye on because like the blue jays are obviously motivated to to add high impact talent as you said like as Ross Atkins said we want to add a super impactful player and I think they're going to try really hard to to do that but you know oftentimes like it's these smaller scale moves sort of around the margins where you you really get the value and you really build that sort of deep versatile roster that you need to get through a major league season and the playoffs like you look at the depth of the Dodgers and look at the depth of the Rays. I mean, you know, inevitably you're going to have players getting hurt. You're going to have players underperforming and you're going to want to replace them from within during the season with capable veterans, proven dependable options, guys who, you know, can get it done at the big league level. Um, you know, last year the Blue Jays had to go out and get a Taiwan Walker and like get a Robbie Ray and, and supplement from outside the organization. Cause they just weren't getting that level of production from within when guys, ultimately went down so you know i just think that this winter is about building out as much talent as possible through the blue jays and building as much depth as possible and that's why i think december 2nd is going to be a really important date that's right well as all of my fellow vegetarians know sometimes the best meals include no meat at all now i'm not not saying that the blue jays are not going to be in on the top free agents because they have to be but yeah i think when you're talking about the non-tenders though and the relievers Absolutely. That's a that's a great spot to to add to your bullpen. Jays need to add to their bullpen too, obviously. I mean, it's pretty thin. Beyond Jordan Romano right now and Rafael Dolis, that's a big need for them as guys like Thomas Hatch and Anthony Kay transition to the AAA rotation. So we can't forget about that. Not that it's need number one. Nick Ashbourne is a great piece at sportsnet.ca looking at some of these candidates. He lists Carlos Estevez and Jose Reina as a couple of potential targets. You can you can read Nick's piece for some of the reasons why, but I think when you're looking at these guys, and this kind of ties into your point earlier about free agents having to take your money. Well, if you think as the Toronto Blue Jays that those guys are going to be non-tendered, this also opens up an opportunity for a trade talk because at that point, you don't have to persuade them to sign with you. They're still under club control. You can offer up a low-level prospect or cash considerations or you know player to be named. The team gets something instead of non-tendering them. And then you, as the Blue Jays, then get control of that player. Now, of course, in that scenario, you have to pay them through the arbitration system. But we know that the Blue Jays have the financial flexibility and freedom to, you know, pay that kind of money. That's what they did with Chase Anderson last offseason. Exactly. They have that exact type of moves. We know they've they've made it before. And uh, it kind of ties into the Blue Jays' 40-man roster, which, uh, as we know now, is full. As the Blue Jays made the decision to add Gabby Moreno, Riley Adams, Otto Lopez, Josh Palacios, and Ty Tice at the sort of deadline to add players uh, to the 40-man uh, lest they be exposed to the Rule 5 draft. So that kind of, you know, that tells you a few things. But when it comes to trades, which you're talking about, like the Blue Jays are in a position where they, you know, I don't know that they have to make some trades, but it, they are kind of set up to make some because they have no, you know, if they want to sign a free agent right now, 
that somebody has to come off of this 40 man roster. And there's obviously options there, right? Like Travis Shaw is likely to be non-tendered, you know, Derek Fisher and Jonathan Davis are like pretty much on the edge of this 40 man. I would say, you know, Reese McGuire is as well being out of options yeah. and, you know, being one of five catchers on the 40 Jacob yeah. Wagaspak is a guy who, you know, if the Blue Jays had to, I think they would be fine with DFAing him. But, you know, there, there's also a scenario here where the Blue Jays, are thinking, hmm, like we could be making some trades here uh, because they filled up their 40. Yeah, exactly. So someone's coming off. A few guys are coming off. And we don't know exactly what that'll look like. But there are a couple of ways that that could happen. I think you outlined both of them, right? One of them is you're just cutting players for nothing. Shaw, likely to come off. Fisher, I'm expecting now that he'll probably be a casualty of that as well. Then there's the trade scenario. And if you're trading, like let's say... Let's use Lindor because his name's obviously out there. If you're trading for Francisco Lindor, you're probably trading a couple players off the 40-man. Maybe not more than two, but probably a good chance a couple of those guys are um, involved in a trade. So that could be one way to to free up spots. But this 40-man roster is going to look very different on February 15th than it does now. Yeah, definitely. And I think also the Blue Jays protecting the five players that they did uh, at least indicates to me that this could be um, a particularly active Rule 5 draft at the winter meetings in a couple weeks. And like that makes sense when you think about it. A lot of clubs are in a position right now where they're looking to trim payroll and field as, you know, frankly, as cheap of a major league roster in 2021 as possible. And hey, a great way to do that is by rostering young players in their first year of major league service because they the best make way. <laughs> the absolute minimum. You have to pay them the absolute minimum. That's a great way to do it. And you also think about roster sizes and we don't know how big rosters are going to be in 2021. We don't know if it's going to go back to 26, if it's going to be 28 again. We saw 30 this year. It's safe to assume like clubs will have at least, you know, an extra spot or two than they normally do. But we've also seen in the recent past, you don't necessarily need that extra spot. The Elvis Luciano year, the Blue Jays had 25 roster spots. They carried Elvis Luciano through the entire season when he had no business being in MLB at, at 19. And he was, you know, they were basically just searching for blowouts to, to get him into because he'd enter the game. And he didn't know like where the ball was going. He walked so many guys. Yeah. So uh, he'd enter the game and it was like either, look, this, this pitch is either going to go to the backstop, <laughs> yeah. it's going to drill the guy, or it's going to be like the nastiest pitch you've ever seen yeah. that like curls right through the strike zone and gets a like a really change awkward. that fades off the corner. Really awkward swing and miss, right? You just like, it was just like a dice roll. That consistency obviously isn't there yet. That development hasn't happened yet because he was 19, right? Like he should have been an A ball, you know, and the Blue Jays are betting that, you know, in the next couple of years, he is going to, you know, round out that consistency and learn how to locate and command his stuff better and be a pretty good pitcher someday. But the point here is that it's very doable to carry a young player you know, through an MLB season, particularly if you weren't a super competitive club as the Blue Jays weren't that year, you know, if you're rebuilding and just trying to, you know, find young talent wherever you can get it, it's super doable, especially when you have those extra roster spots. So, you know, I I think this indicates that the Blue Jays expect that there's going to be quite a bit of activity on Rule 5 day. Yeah, it's more than more guys than I thought they would protect. I mean, Ross Atkins had kind of led us to believe that they would leave some of those spots open, but five players rostered in the end. So I, I was a little bit surprised. It's interesting in the sense because it, it guarantees that, you know, we are going to have more activity 
And I think, you know, the rule five is always, always fun for baseball transactions fans, but this year it does have a chance to be very different for the reasons that you explained there. Let's step away, take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about when some of that activity might begin all that and so much more. And we continue on at the letters. It continues on at the letters Arden's Welling, Ben Nicholson Smith. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. So, Ben, I've kind of indicated that I think that December 2nd would be a big pivot point for this market because you'll just have a more fulsome understanding of like who's even out there. Um, so, you know, clubs will just have a better sense of what value they can put on guys depending on the market. And, you know, maybe some teams by then will have a better idea of what their budget looks like for uh, 2021. I think a lot of that has to depend on the revenue they can expect to pull in. And, you know, nobody really knows right now or has any certainty over when fans will be in seats, uh, you know, when the season will begin. I mean, there's so many, so many questions. Um, but do you expect that on December 2nd, the market could start picking up and we could start seeing guys signed? Or do you think that we're in for a bit of a, a longer slog through the winter? Well, you know, I, I think that December 2nd is probably the most significant turning point that's coming up, even bigger than the winter meetings, to be honest. And it's probably the last thing that will really kickstart the offseason into motion. I mean, there's some other, there are some other factors slowing it down when you think about, all right, like the New York Mets still don't have a GM. So that's, that's a factor. But I mean, the Sandy Alderson is running baseball ops. Like they, there are people there that you could talk to if you wanted to spark a trade discussion with the Mets. So that's one factor. I think also we're seeing um, some players posted internationally from the Pacific Rim, including Hassan Kim, who's potential Jays target. So those processes slow things down as well, just knowing that there are, you, you know, that has to start before teams can, can officially and formally engage with those players. So those are factors. But to me, the biggest thing here is the non-tender market. And that's the case every year. I think it's more so the case this year for the reasons that we've discussed and how many players we expect will be non-tendered. And it's, you know, it's actually got me thinking, Arden, that if you're Major League Baseball, I think there's actually a case to move the non-tender deadline up by a couple of weeks. I mean, I don't see why it couldn't be November 15th for argument's sake. And I know teams gain some marginal advantage by essentially holding these players in purgatory for a couple extra weeks and gaining that flexibility. But I think if you look more broadly at the industry, I think there's something to be said for kickstarting the offseason in November and getting things moving a little bit. I'm not saying it has to be, you know, full NBA, everything happens at once, you know, this craziness, like there's all these deals going down. But having a little bit more pace to it, I, I think would be would be good for the sport, in my opinion. And I think you could accomplish that if you move the non-tender deadline up, even just by a couple of weeks. Well, yeah, and, you know, teams also gain a better sense of their alternatives then, right? So like if you're the Toronto Blue Jays, you need a third baseman, and you know that, you know, you can, you know, get Travis Shaw through arbitration for you know, whatever it was going to be, four or five, six million dollars. But then you go out and you see who else is on this market, right? And you have an understanding of what they're expecting, what you could sign them for. Like it's a really big advantage for the team. It's really a big disadvantage for the player because <laughs> Travis Shaw can't talk to other teams right now. You know, even though it's pretty likely he's going to be non-tendered by the Blue Jays, like he can't, you know, begin discussions of getting his new uh, a new job and finding employment for next year. So I agree with you that it should be 
moved up. And I like I can't think of a real reason why the date is where it is right now, other than you know teams want the advantage. Other than like a lot of the structures of this sport are uh, you know slanted pretty you know heavily towards teams and towards franchises. Like, can you think of any reason why? we wait until December 2nd to do that when there is this like pretty dead zone in the calendar between the, the world series and, and then, you know, I do know that major league baseball likes being in the news cycle 12 months a year. And that makes sense. I think you can accomplish that even if the tender deadlines a couple of weeks earlier, right? You still have the hall of fame in January. You still have spring training in February. You still have, you know, arbitration or some extensions happening after the new year, typically. So it's not a danger that baseball is going to fall out of the conversation if all of a sudden we move the tender deadline back a few weeks. And I think also, you know, it's not like teams aren't aware or it's not like teams need those extra couple weeks. Like it doesn't take a month for a front office to figure out whether they're going to tender Travis Shaw or Teoscar Hernandez a contract, right? The Blue Jays knew they could have made this call on, you know, October 10th if they had to. Like it's, it's really probably a, at most a two-week process. In a lot of years, it's so easy. I mean, we can tell from the outside in a lot of cases who's going to be tender and who's not. Some of the decisions speak for themselves. So it's not like the teams need that amount of time. It's not like baseball needs the tender deadline to be postponed to stay in the news cycle. So, you know, I, I haven't dug into this a ton. Maybe I am missing something, but I, I think honestly, it would have a big effect on things if you moved it up by a couple of weeks. And I think that would be good because then you have you know, the, the last week in November after U.S. Thanksgiving, the first couple weeks in December, like you're not waiting for something at that point, it could be, let's go, like things are, things are starting to move. One nice thing that we can't attach a deadline to is that international market and some of the, the foreign players who are posted. Because once you're posted, uh, as far as I understand it, there's a 30-day negotiating window and then you get a, a decision at, at the end of that. So we've seen a couple Japanese pitchers be posted. Like obviously the, the Blue Jays made a move in that market last year with Shun Yamaguchi and there's a couple more Japanese arms who are going to be available and Kohei uh, Arihara and Tomoyuki Sugano. So those are our names I'm sure would interest the Blue Jays. The one name that you mentioned earlier that I think the Blue Jays absolutely need to be in on is Hassan Kim. He is the Korean shortstop coming out of KBO who, uh, if he hasn't been posted yet, the expectation is that it will be sometime this week. So we're looking at him landing with a team, you know, likely by, by Christmas. And this is like a very intriguing prospect and a very intriguing entry into this free agent market for a number of reasons first of all pretty good hitter in kbo like a regular 300 hitter and a guy with like 400 obps walked more than he struck out last season hit a, a bunch of bombs a guy with a lot of versatility could play shortstop could play second can play third that's always attractive to teams but the biggest thing he's 25 he's younger than Kevin biggio Born same year, but he is younger than Kevin Biggio. Like that is the how young we're talking about here. And this is, you know, it is so, so rare that you can acquire a free agent at 25. You know, you were paying for his uh, 20, age 26, age 27, age 28 seasons when, you know, George Springer and DJ LeMayhew are already in their early 30s. Like there's a big difference there. And I'm not saying that Hassan Kim is, you know, on the same level as the, you know, most elite hitters in this market but we have seen that there is still potential to grow there 
and to develop. You know, last year he had a pretty big power breakout um, and, and demonstrated the type of plate discipline and approach, you know, and, and strike zone command that, that you want to see from a player who's going to continue to get better. He's got the athleticism and the sort of the quick twitchiness that you would bet on as far as a player who can improve for the coming years as he enters his prime. I just think that there is a lot of potential here and like a very real opportunity for the Blue Jays to add like a young core piece. And look, there's always going to be, you know, there's a conversion rate in your performance coming from KBO to MLB, but just considering everything that we know about Hassan Kim and considering that, you know, I know the Blue Jays scouts like him as well. I think there's, you know, a real opportunity here to add a, a, a player. And I think the Blue Jays absolutely need to be in on it. For sure. I think you look at those offensive numbers. I mean, it's great. You see the power. You see the, as you mentioned, the walk to strikeout ratio. Those are great signs. It's, it's tricky, right? Because that's the level he was playing at. He did his job. He performed. But no matter how well you perform in the KBO as a hitter, it still raises the question of how you're going to do when you're facing guys who are throwing 95 and 96 every single inning, every single at-bat, nasty breaking stuff, the pitching in Major League Baseball is just better. So that conversion rate is a really important question because if he's a versatile, young, athletic player who doesn't hit, it doesn't really matter, right? right. At that point, you have Orlando Arcia. And okay, <laughs> I mean, that's fine. He's a Major League player, but it's not necessarily like a difference maker. But there's some percent chance, and this is the question that the Blue Jays and other teams now have to answer internally, there's some percent chance that he actually will hit and that that production will translate and that velocity won't be a problem for him. And he's destined to become an all-star caliber player in Major League Baseball. And if that's the case, or if you estimate that there's a really good chance that that's the case, then you've got to be an aggressive bidder for him. And you bet on your developers, you bet on your coaches and your coordinators, you bet on your people who are going to be helping him, you know, make that adjustment and, you know, get accustomed to, to big league pitching and to being attacked differently and to, you know, curveballs to spin differently and, and fastballs that are firmer. Like you make that bet. And I think you also make the bet on the fact that he's 25 and he's still getting better. I mean, players this young with this type of talent base just don't, become available on the free agent market like it's just not a commodity that is ever out there you know that also plays into something that i wonder about which is like where do you put the value on a guy like that because like as we know the blue jays are all about value with any free agent that they engage with before they ever talk to him they've already assigned a number <laughs> to this yeah. guy they already know <laughs> like here is you know like if if he would accept you know x years and x money today we would offer him that today uh, here is what we would offer him as a maximum somewhere down the road after some negotiation. And here is a number that we would walk away at. We would say, you know, you know you're a great player and we would love to have you, but that's we're just not going to offer you that. So that's right. I don't know how the Blue Jays will assign those numbers to a guy like Hassan Kim. And I don't know how the industry will assign their values to Hassan Kim. Like the values could be all over the place because he's so young. And because he's versatile, like there's, you know, there's just not a lot of comps for a guy like this being on the open market. But I do think that the Blue Jays are in a real position to be competitive for him because they have money to spend, because they have some certainty over their their budget for 2021. I mean, as I was saying earlier, a lot of teams probably don't have that certainty. We know a lot of teams are, are looking to shed payroll. I think there's a lot of teams that are waiting to find out if they're going to be allowed fans in, in their markets in 2021. And I just think that the Blue Jays could be part of a very select number of aggressive bidders 
for a player like this. Um, and I wonder if there's an opportunity here to take advantage of a bit of a, an uncertain market. They should do it. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it, I think it's yeah. <laughs> I've convinced you. <laughs> yeah, um, I think he'd be a, a based on what we know, right? Which you know, I'm not a scout and I'm not watching his games, so I don't. You know, I, it's hard to say how those numbers would translate. But the numbers are great, and he's young and he's athletic and versatile. Like it's yeah, that's the kind of player that the Jays should 100% be on. I guess this all ties into um, some of the uncertainty over what the 2021 season is even going to look like. And like, it's kind of, it's funny sometimes to like, you know, hear and read things where people will talk about, well, you know, how are they going to get through 162 games? And let's hope they do. (laughs) I don't know that any team's going to play. Nobody's getting through. There's no 162 games in, in 2021, in my opinion. You know, you see and read things where it's like, well, you know, there's two and a half months to spring training. Is there is yeah. spring training starting in mid February? I have serious doubts. Just considering the the pandemic situation in the United States, considering the you know looming vaccines that are likely to start being distributed in early 2021, like you know, I, I just think that the timelines of this pandemic are going to really impact how much baseball is played in 2021 and like when baseball begins in 2021, like when you know the way that. The sort of uh, it's a negotiation, basically, is how it was described to me over games played in 2021, just as it was in 2020. It's a negotiation, and for players, that negotiation starts at 162 because players want to be paid 100% of their salaries. They don't want a prorated 60, 80, 100 game salary. They want a full 162. But if it's a negotiation, then the players aren't going to get their absolute starting point is going to be somewhere less than 162. So I just think that. You know, the there there's so much uncertainty over 2021 that you know this market is going to be held up for some time outside of players that have sort of built-in deadlines like a Hassan Kim. Just be you know, you even think about like as an NL club, you don't know if you have a DH next year. You don't know about minor league play next year. I mean, you don't know about your roster size. So, you know, I just uh, you know, I think it is very murky what a 2021 season is gonna look like, but what I you know, do feel confident in is that we should not be speaking about the 2021 season as like a 162 game season with any certainty. And we shouldn't be talking about spring training starting in mid February with any certainty. I honestly would bet against either of those two things happening. Yeah. No, I, I think 162 players obviously want, I don't know as a blanket statement, we're all at the mercy of the virus still. Um, you know, so that's, who knows? Like we really, we really don't know. The last few months have certainly underscored that. But you know, if things continue progressing toward you know, potentially a vaccine, or or even if they even if they don't, Major League Baseball will still proceed with a, with a season of some kind. And what that looks like, I think, is an open question. I do tend to agree with you that that traditional February, the what is it, twelfth, thirteenth, usually spring training starts yeah. up. Not, I, I don't see that happening this year. Certainly, I don't expect to be there in Florida when that's happening. I think we'll be exactly probably where we are. But yeah, there's so many interlocking questions here. And I think it's a good point and a good time to highlight that because there tends to be this assumption, this isn't just in baseball, but there tends to be this assumption that, hey, 2021, okay, well, that's when things will will get back to normal. And at least in baseball, it's it's not necessarily going to be the case. And you think about you know, the DH example is a perfect small scale illustration of, of all this uncertainty because it ties into the negotiations. I mean, Rob Manfred could, 
and I would say should, just say today, look, we're going to have the DH. We've talked to the players. Players are fine with it. We're going to do that. And then guys who are in that market can actually start signing and making some decisions and, and moving ahead and teams too, right? It's actually kind of unfair to national league teams. If you think about it, like it's there, there are 15 teams out there that actually like, this is a major structural question that they're facing. American league <laughs> yeah. teams know what the positions are. National league teams <laughs> don't know the positions. Right. That's a pretty major thing, right? So half of the league literally doesn't know what the positions are going to be. It's, it's like, if you think about it, it's kind of absurd, but Manfred could work with the players to create resolution on that front. Instead, the league is holding that essentially as a bargaining chip for whatever else is going to come. And that's something that they can hold on to. Um, and there's, I, I suppose, some value in doing that. We know that this ongoing discussion between Tony Clark and Rob Manfred that we saw so much of in the summer is not over. It's really only just beginning when you think about the negotiations for 2021. And then after that, after they figure out what next season looks like, oh, the CBA is up. They have to do it again. Two things with that. Number one, the DH thing absolutely impacts not only teams, but some players. Yeah. Like Nelson Cruz's market might increase by 15, right? Uh, or, you know, like a Michael Brantley, right? Like sort of like an yep. older position player who like a team might feel a lot more comfortable rostering if they had that DH spot to give him some days off his feet in the field, you know, rather than having to have him, you know, playing defensively every time that he's in there. The length of season impacts like innings eaters, right? And like some some of the veteran starters, you know, and, yep. and you talk about the value of a Tanner Roark, like taking the ball every five days and giving you, you know, five league average innings. Uh, there's a lot more value to that over a 162 game season than over a, a 60 game season. But then, the, you know, the other thing you mentioned, right? It, it's when does this negotiation begin? over what 2021 is going to be like. It, maybe they're already talking. We haven't heard much about these two sides having much communication or much negotiation to this point, which is a little troubling because I think that like this needs to start soon. Like There needs to be some very like quick, effective communication between these two sides to get something set up. Think, remember how long it took in 2020 which is, I talked about 2020 as if it's not still 2020. Yeah. Like, think about how long that took, right? It feels like eons ago, but like throughout the spring and early summer when these two sides were negotiating, going back and forth, like there was a very prolonged process that he had to go through in order to iron things out and arrive at the 60-game season that MLB unilaterally imposed. They never even really agreed on anything. But the longer it takes to start that negotiation and to start that discussion, the less likely we are to get baseball you know beginning when we are accustomed to it normally beginning and between now and then are you going to get a union grievance over the 60 game season right alleging that MLB did not make its best effort to play as many games as possible are you going to get more bickering and things like the DH being held up as a negotiating tool or things like an expanded playoffs being held up. That's the other thing. You don't know how many playoff teams right. there's going to be, which <laughs> impacts what you do as a franchise. Yeah. Um, and then like the, the final sort of layer to this, which colors the whole thing, is the CBA expires after 2021. There is a massive negotiation looming for 2022 when you're going to need a new cba clubs might already be baking in to their projections of revenue for 2021 the fact that there is possibly going to be a work stoppage 
in 2022. So there's a lot of MLB franchises that could just be coming off of a year in 2020 where they didn't make any gate revenue. They yep. didn't sell any popcorn and no game day hats, merchandise and things. Then they're looking at 2022 and the other side of this coming season as, hmm, we might not have any revenue there from anything because the sport might not be played. Now I'm looking at 2021 as a year when like, geez, am I going to have three consecutive seasons of very little revenue? Like I'm looking at 2021 as a time when I'm not, I'm not as an owner, I'm not looking to play that many games. Like I'm not looking to go anywhere near 162 because I've already lost so much money last year. I think I'm going to lose a lot of money next year. That really impacts what I'm going to do now. And then that also impacts payrolls and budgets and, the player development staffs and scouting, like there's just, there's so much trickle down from this whole scenario and from the uncertainty. And I do not know how it all ends. Nobody does. <laughs> yeah. Literally nobody does. I mean, I think when you're talking about some of these scenarios, which I agree, I mean, they exist, but there are still pathways for Major League Baseball and its teams to avoid them. And I mean, if you're, you know, if you're looking at 2022, the players are going to be willing to strike a deal. The players are not going to want to strike, but you know they have to find some middle ground there. And that's something that over the course of this past summer, they had some trouble doing. Um, hopefully that's not the case because nobody wants a work stoppage in 2022, especially after a couple of seasons that for I think everyone involved, players and owners and front office employees even have been you know, already trying and probably will continue to be trying. So Hopefully, they can avoid that that doomsday scenario in 22, but it is a possibility. And in 2021, definitely revenue is down. We, uh, you know, it seems as though Rob Manfred is going to try to get some fans into the stands next year. And even if not, they still have very lucrative TV contracts that bring some rev- some significant revenue into the sport. And of course, the ongoing escalation of franchise values to the point that you see, you know, the Marlins or I think the Royals sold for over a billion dollars or the, the Mets, of course, bought by Steve Cohen, who's incredibly rich. And, and so it's not like this is total disaster zone, but there are scenarios here and real scenarios that Major League Baseball has, as you said, three consecutive years that are pretty tough. Well, and you even think about the arguments over testing and over like playing baseball during a pandemic, like, you know, one side is going to say, look, hey, yeah, the protocols worked. Like, we're good. We could play 162. Like, we're, you know, we're fine, right? We got through the season. The other side's going to say, well, what happened in Miami? And like, what happened with St. Louis? And oh, is there going to be a vaccine widely available, say, in June? Well, and we're not going to start any sooner than the time that a vaccine is pervasive, the time that we're able to get it. And, you know, obviously, you know, major league ball players are not going to be at the front of the vaccine line. Like, well, <laughs> maybe they will. <laughs> I would hope not. I would hope yeah. that our most vulnerable are at the front of that line, and you know, frontline workers are at the front of that line. But like, yeah, but you never even, know. <laughs> beyond that, you want fans to be getting the vaccine yes. so they can show up to the ballpark, so of they could be in seats. Like that's the yep. most important thing is like putting butts in seats. Like if you if if owners could open up their stadiums this season, twenty twenty one, and like have full attendance. Um, and have some sort of like, you know, just feel strongly that fans would be willing to show up, you know, that they felt safe showing up and that they could expect a good amount of attendance. I think you would see them a lot more willing to play a lot more games this year. But if you're not going to have that like vaccine pervasiveness until June, I don't know why they would start playing games until June. Right. There is setting aside the economics. There is in that scenario, a public health argument for waiting. 
Sure. So yeah. like, I just think there are, you know, so many things still to shake out this off season. So like, I'm like, I'm hopeful that December 2nd is going to be, uh, you know, a bit of a, a turning point for this market. We're going to start seeing some more stuff happen, but I could also very much foresee a virtual winter meetings in which not a whole lot goes down. Yeah. It's funny, right? This basically like this whole conversation from the non-tenders to looking bigger picture at major league baseball, it really does reinforce like there's so many things that are just slowing it down. And even just thinking like kind of saying it out loud reminds me that, oh yeah, the National League teams like literally don't know if there's a DH. Nobody knows how many playoff teams are in. Like, of course that will slow things down. You think Marcelo Zuna is is going to rush to sign a deal when he might have 15 more, you know, as as you said with Nelson Cruz or even, even guys lower in that market. Like there are a lot of things slowing this down. Let's hope that the non-tenders sparks things a little bit. And, you know, that's, that's likely to be something, but won't necessarily send everything else into motion. Well, and my last thing on this, you know, you look at like other leagues in other sports, like you look at the NBA where the two sides like agreed to, yeah, we'll have this shortened schedule and it's going to, you know, start here and, you know, this is how we're going to play the season. And this, you know, we're going to cancel the all-star game, this, that, and the other, like they, they agreed to all those terms and free agency open and within 48 hours, everybody was signed. Yeah, MLB free agency has been open for I don't know, like almost a month now, Uh and three starters have signed. You know what I mean? Right? Like Derek Law signed a minor league deal. Like, so like there there are other ways that this could play out. We see it in other sports. Obviously, it's different. They have a salary cap, and you know they have like many. You know, there isn't as many grievances, but you know, but and like acrimony between that union and and the owners over there. But there there are other ways that this can play out. Yeah, the baseball barbecue guys, another podcast that I, that I listened to made a great analogy. They said the NBA offseason is like chugging a four loco and the Major League Baseball offseason is like drinking warm milk through a straw, which I thought was a nice uh, <laughs> contrast. Have you ever and, chugged a four loco? No. I don't recommend it. It's not a pleasant experience. <laughs> I might take the milk. But go yeah. ahead. And so it you know, raises the structural question of how you want an off-season to look, right? You know, could you have an off-season deadline? I think it's an interesting idea. I think Major League Baseball owners are not going to want to give players the bargaining leverage that they would hand over if they created a deadline. I just don't think that's going to happen. But it's an interesting possibility, and who knows? Maybe you know, this is a time, I think, for, for ideas in baseball you know, whether it's, and Theo Epstein talked about this, like he's someone who who could potentially implement this and get buy-in from a lot of different people on it. You know, obviously Mark Shapiro here in Toronto is on the competition committee discussing ideas along these lines. But especially after this year, we've seen such a reminder that it doesn't have to be the baseball that we grew up with. It's okay yep. to change the sport and have it still be just as fun as before. So I hope that people have a, a newfound willingness to, seek out different ways of doing things there was a time when you know runner on second base and extra innings was sacrilege or yeah dh in both leagues or expanded playoffs seven inning double headers like all this stuff was like you can't make those huge changes and we all saw it this year and we're like oh actually some of these things are pretty good yeah exactly <laughs> so same thing could be applied to off-season deadlines and yeah. to transactions exactly that's where like my non-tender deadline thing you know, I, I think that I think that we should make this happen. Um, I think it's just one little thing. Um, you're not going to have you're not going to have I don't think a, an off season deadline. Although that is something that you know executives have thought about and discussed over the years for sure. I just don't think owners would go for it. 
We shall see. We will be back uh, within, uh, I don't know, a week, two weeks, whenever uh, you know, something happens with the Blue Jays. We'll be back around the winter meetings, certainly. And we'll be here with you throughout the offseason here on uh, sports.ca's Blue Jays podcast. Uh, and a reminder, if you would like, you can uh, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Very much appreciated. Always like hearing your feedback, whether you leave it through a, a review or you send it to us on, on Twitter, email us, whatever you want to do. It's always good to hear from uh, the listeners and uh, you know, hear hear how you're enjoying the podcast so i want to thank our producers christian ryan and mike tassoni as always that's ben nicholson smith i'm arden swelling and we're going to talk to you next time on at the letters